Jesus. How many of you have never heard someone preach a sermon from a genealogy before? Huh? Well, you've all heard you've all heard a sermon on the genealogy. That's impressive. Honestly, I've never sat through a sermon where someone preached on just the genealogy. And I've never done it. So apparently you've done it somewhere else besides here. That's good. That's good. I'm, I'm pleased with this. But I have not uh, ever preached this. But I'm, I'm excited to preach it for you um, and show you the glory of Christ in the genealogy. Here's my message, message this morning from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. He was numbered with the transgressors. Let's stand together and we'll read this passage together. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar, and Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Amminadab, and Amminadab begat Naasson, and Naasson begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Ruth, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, I'm sorry, Boaz of Rechab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. And Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Joatham. And Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadak, and Sadak begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David and of carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open the word together this morning, I pray that we would see your hand at work in bringing about the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we would recognize that uh, you had a plan and you worked that plan, and that you in your heart knew when the fullness of time would be and that in the fullness of time you sent forth your son to be born in our world and i pray that we would recognize in this the impact on history the course of history that was changed when jesus christ came into our world and that we would rejoice in this 
And I pray that we would learn what you have for us from your word. Please help us and bless us, Lord, that we would delight ourselves in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Genealogies play a big role in the Bible. There are, you know, the book of Numbers is, starts out with just genealogy after genealogy and lists of names. And, and it's easy when you read these things in, in the Chronicles, the same thing. You have really the whole history in this family line, the lineage, and these records were kept very carefully as well. In fact, Matthew was not just drawing out of legend when he gave his genealogy. He was drawing from public records which had been scrupulously kept. And it's interesting because there's a 400-year period that is not recorded for us in Scripture. There is no biblical record of it, and yet Matthew has the genealogy from that time period between Matthew, between Malachi and Matthew, and he relates it to us. People, we have no idea who they were, what their story was, but Matthew gives us a listing still of their genealogies. It's impressive. But so much of life was through these genealogies and understanding the understanding of who you were that came out of your lineage and your family history. Your understanding of where you fit in the world came from that. And of course, in this careful record keeping, this meticulous record keeping that took place, genealogical records that were recorded and maintained over many, many years and generations, these things were communicating to the people all the time it communicates. It's, it's actually a detriment in our culture that many of us, myself included, are not very familiar with our great-grandparents. If they were not alive when you came into this world, you may not know very much about them. And your great-great-grandparents, you probably would have to research in order to learn about them. That's only a couple of generations removed. But I believe that it has impacted our culture in the sense that uh, we very much feel disconnected from the past. Genealogies were intended to anchor people, to root them in the past, to give them an understanding that they, their life came out of this past and grew out of the past of the family uh, to where I am today. That connection all the way back to uh, the beginning, really, was, was part of that communicating to the people that you came from somewhere, that there is a history behind your life itself, a history that you yourself are not familiar with, but that history played a role in bringing you to the place where you are today. And this is something that I think is just a foreign concept to our culture. Even, I'm just looking at some of you, you're looking at me like, you're not really even confused. It's like, huh, interesting. You interest me, Pastor. 
with all this talk about genealogy and stuff. Oh, I, I need to check my email again. <clears throat> and this is the way we are living our lives. Genealogies play a big role in the Bible, and the many genealogies that are in the Bible come together in Matthew's genealogy and help us to see really this is the central genealogy in Scripture right here. This is the most important genealogy in Scripture. Here we see that God, from the beginning, from the time he promised Adam and Eve, that he would, that Eve would bruise the serpent's head, that her seed, I should say, would bruise the serpent's head, we find that God was ordering and ordaining all things, working them according to the counsel of his own will, in order to bring about the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> a few things I should tell you here, but Matthew does not present an exhaustive genealogy of Jesus Christ. But instead, he divides his family line into three equal parts of 14 generations each. Now, most believe, and the best explanation that I found for this is that Matthew did this as a memory aid, so that this would be an easy way for you to remember the, the, the generations from Abraham until Christ. And it's interesting, too, that he begins not with Adam, not with Noah, but with Abraham, because Matthew here is demonstrating that Jesus has the lineage, that he has the bona fides to make him the Messiah. If Jesus' lineage could not be traced back to David and to Abraham, then there was no sense in even having a conversation about him as the Messiah. But Matthew is demonstrating here Christ's connection to the royal seed of David through the succession of the kings. That's why Matthew names all the kings, which, by the way, Luke in his genealogy does not mention. So there's this connecting Jesus to the kings of Israel that is done intentionally here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew includes in his genealogy the names that God wishes to highlight. And Matthew excludes those names that God means to leave out of the record of Jesus Christ. And believe me when I tell you this, I'm going to show it to you in a minute. But Matthew leaves names off his list. His genealogy, as I said, is not exhaustive. He does not name every generation from Abraham until Jesus. Let me show you a couple of things that you uh, might find interesting here. Uh, the point is that Matthew does not give an exhaustive genealogy, but he does give a comprehensive genealogy 
of Jesus. And he is, again, intentionally including names that God wants included and excluding names that God wants excluded from the record. All right? So, <clears throat> Matthew connects Christ to the royal lines, the royal line of the kings, so that we can see that his claim to be the Messiah is a legitimate claim. But Matthew is giving the genealogy of our salvation. It has been pointed out that Genesis, the book of Genesis, is also a book of generations. In fact, Genesis 5 and verse 1 says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And now Matthew begins his book by saying the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> with such an important book, we would expect to see the, a blue-blooded pedigree here for Jesus. If you buy a really expensive dog, you know, you would expect to get papers. And those papers, our family has had border collies. And any great line of border collies, if you get a good border collie, then you're going to see in its pedigree, in its family history, you're going to see some of these ancestors that came from Scotland, that came from England, that came from Ireland, where the Border Collie was bred and developed. It, you look for that sort of thing in the pedigree to see that line, to see that lineage in the dog. Even so, we would expect, we would anticipate that the most important man, the great king, the promised king, the Messiah, that his, ped, his pedigree, his, his lineage would include the great, the famous, the noble, the honorable from history, from Israel's history. <clears throat> Instead, when we examine Christ's family line, we find a mixture of renegades and heroes, of saints and of scoundrels. Jesus brought grace to the disgraced and brought redemption, in fact, to his own lineage. Now, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus provides his title or proves his title to be the Messiah, but also shows that he came as the least of men, that he descended from a troubled and declining family line, that he took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh, and all this so that he could dive to the bottom in order to bring us to the top. Matthew divides the genealogy of Christ into three equal parts, all centered on King David. We can summarize these remarkable periods this way. The first 14 generations give us the rise of King David. The middle 14 gives us the house of King David. And the final 14 gives us the decline of the house of David. 
And then Christ shines forth out of it the glory of his people, Israel. Let's begin with the rise of David. Matthew counts 14 generations from Abraham to David. There can be no doubt that there are more than 14. If we just take four of the 14 generations, from Pharaoh's in verse 3 to Amenadab in verse 4, we know that these four generations cover 400 years. Now that's not a typical generation, all right? So what that tells you is that Matthew is not giving a generation from father to son to father to son in that order, in that way. All right, he names four, and these four cover 400 years. And we know this because in Genesis 15 and verse 13, God said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. So God told Abraham in advance that his children's children would go to Egypt and they would be there as slaves in a strange land for 400 years. Now, Pharaoh is the son of Judah and he moved with his father to the land of Egypt when Joseph was second in command in Egypt. And the first chapter of Numbers tells us that God commanded Moses to pull the men of Israel 20 years and old and upward. Okay, so understand, this is what we're saying. We know that Judah moved to Egypt, the land of Egypt, and that from the time that Judah and Pharaoh, Pharaoh was born already when he moved there, Pharaoh probably was an adult when they moved there, and at the time that Pharaoh moved to Egypt, God had promised Abraham that they would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. At the end of that 400 years, Moses led the people out of the land of Egypt, and when he did, God told Moses to gather the people to himself and to pull the men of Israel 20 years old and upward. In Numbers 1 and verse 4, says, and with you there shall be a man of every tribe, everyone head of the house of his fathers. And then in Numbers 1 and verse 7, and really Numbers chapter 1 goes through who was the head of each house of each tribe in Israel. And when in Numbers 1 and verse 7 names the representative head of the house of Judah, it names Nashon the son of Amenadab, who represented the tribe of Judah. So again, from Pharaoh until Nashon, there were 400 years represented by those four generations. Now, as I said, this is a comprehensive list that includes the names that God wishes to highlight. Leading up to David, God highlights four women, plus Mary, the mother of Jesus. So five women in all named in the lineage of Jesus Christ. The fifth of those women 
was Mary herself. And by the way, notice in verse 16 how careful Matthew is to make sure we know that Jesus was born of Mary, not Joseph. And then, of course, the rest of Matthew chapter 1 is going to give that in detail, going to zero in on that one thing. So we'll come back to that uh, in a later message. <clears throat> but the four women who are highlighted are highlighted actually in the rise of David. The four women, besides Mary, who are mentioned in this lineage, are the women that led to David. David came from these four women. Two of the four were involved in a terrible scandal. The third verse tells us that Judas begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And so by his daughter-in-law, Judah had brought forth into this world an heir to the throne or a, a father to David himself. Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son. And the Bible tells us that his oldest son was such a wicked man that God killed him. <clears throat> Imagine, I mean, the, the wickedness that surrounded, <coughs> permeated the world at that time. Imagine how wicked a man would have to be for God to kill him and to tell you that he killed him. Now, the Leverite law required that when he died childless, her bro his brother was to take his wife and raise up seed to his brother's name. So that seed would be considered to be his brother's legally, even though he was the natural father of it. And so Judah gave Tamar his second son, but this is a testament to what a wicked man the oldest son of Judah was that his younger brother did not think it would be good for his name to be remembered in the world and for that reason he conducted a fraud carried out a fraud on Tamar he pretended that he would raise up seed to his brother. But the Bible tells us in a discreet way that he spilled it on the ground. That instead of raising up seed to his brother, he had relationships with Tamar, but intentionally kept from giving her his seed, if you will. And so as a result of that, God killed him because of the fraud he committed against Tamar. And now two of the sons of Judah have been executed by God himself. And Judah just shows what a man of the world he was. He blames it on Tamar. And he figures that he's not, he's going to tell her, he's going to promise, I'll give you my third son, but he's still a boy. So when he becomes a man, I'll give him to you so that he can raise up seed for you. But Judah never intends to do that, of course, because he thinks that the poison is Tamar. 
instead of the poison being his own wicked sons. So when Shelah, the third son of, uh, of Judah, comes of age, Tamar realizes that she's, uh, he hasn't given him to me yet, and so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. And this tells you that Tamar also knew very well the reputation of her father. What Tamar did was she heard that Judah was coming to town, and so she dressed herself like a whore and waited at the city gates, knowing that when he came, Judah would hire her. And he did. And he went in to her, and the Bible says that she became pregnant with twins as a result of that. And then, of course, Judah shows even more what a man of the world he was, because when he found out that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, he demanded that she be brought outside the city and stoned to death. You know, what a hypocrite, right? This is how it, this is how it works in our world, right? Now, I, I, you know, we see it all around us. Uh, men who play the field are, you know, they're players, right? We speak of them, in, our culture speaks of them in honorable terms. Women who sleep around are called sluts, a pejorative term. This kind of hypocrisy has been carried out for thousands of years. And it was carried out by Judah himself and Tamar, who had kept his rod and his signet, uh, his bracelet, sent them to him and said, by the man who owns these, am I a child? And then Judah realized that he was, he was had right there. Now, <clears throat> Tamar had these twins, and the Bible tells us the story of the birth of these twins. In Genesis 38, in verse 28, the, when the twins were born, the Bible says that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out, and she said, How hast thou broken forth this breach be upon thee? Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Matthew names both twins in his genealogy. And he names both twins because of that scarlet thread. Notice the one with the scarlet thread upon his hand was called Zerah. And yet Matthew says that the lineage went through Pharaohs. And this is because when Israel conquered Jericho, a man named Achan took what God had cursed. Achan was a descendant of Zerah. Joshua 7 verse 18 says, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah. In response to Achan's breach upon Israel, God ordered that the entire house of Achan, including his wife and all his children, be stoned with stones and burned with fire. And so ended the house of Zerah. But at Jericho, another event took place. There was a harlot named Rahab in Jericho. And Rahab the harlot hid the two spies and helped them to escape so that they could 
bring the report back to Israel and conquer Jericho. And the Bible tells us in Joshua 2 and verse 18 that the spies gave Rahab this instruction. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line, listen, of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee, and it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, hand, head, if any hand be upon him. So here's, this is the amazing part of the story. The scarlet thread was tied on Zerah's wrist, and then Achan, the troubler of Israel, was stoned to death, along with all his children, and all of his house, and all of his livestock. And so the, the house of Zerah was eliminated, but the spies, before they went into Jericho, had instructed Rahab the harlot to bind this scarlet thread, this scarlet cord, outside her window, that that would be the mark, and that Israel would pass over her because of that scarlet thread. And in fact, we find that the when the walls of Jericho came crumbling down, the house of Rahab was spared. The house itself stood as the walls around it crumbled, and Rahab and her family were saved. Now, this is where the story gets interesting, because Rahab has that scarlet thread, and through Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, the scarlet thread passed from the house of Zerah to the house of Pharaohs. Because in our genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 4, Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab, Rahab. The, the, the children, the sons of Pharaohs, married, one of the sons of Pharaoh's married Rahab the harlot, and Rahab then became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now before we come to the second scandal, we must not pass over Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, and God banned Moabites from the congregation of Israel for ten generations. She is one of three Gentile women in the family line, along with Tamar and Rahab. Isn't that something that the blood of Israel was mixed with the blood of Gentiles as part of the lineage of Jesus Christ? Because, of course, Christ became, this, became to be the Savior of all men. And then there's Bathsheba, married to a Hittite. So, probably not considered an Israelite by the Israelites. So she comes from an Israelite family. It's been suggested that in the story of David's adultery, Uriah's ethnicity is named so often because David felt more liberty to commit such a horrible sin against a non-Israelite. Whether that's the case or not, Matthew does not gloss over 
or breezed past David's sin, but names it prominently in the genealogy. David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah's. And you would expect that to be the end of the story. By the law of God, that should have been the end of the story. But God is a gracious God. And in fact, God forgave David his sin so that the crime of David being repented to was so far from hindering the promises made to him that it pleased God by this very woman to fulfill it. And so of the four women Matthew makes mention of, Notice, by the way, the women he does not mention. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. He does not mention any of them. But of these four women, three were strangers, two were adulterers, two were involved in some way in incest, and one was banned from the congregation. And out of these fallen women, if you will, out of all this scandal and disgrace, came forth Israel's greatest king. Notice the great emphasis placed on King David. The first verse skips straight to David, calling Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. Twice in the sixth verse, David is called David the king. Many commentaries suggest that the three sets of 14 generations come from, in fact, the Hebrew number for the name of David because Hebrew letters were assigned a numeric value. Not the vowels, but the consonants. The letter D has a value of four, and the letter V has a letter a value of six, so that four plus six plus four equals 14. That's kind of a weird and interesting tidbit of trivia there, but there are many who look at it this way nonetheless. Whether that matters or not, David is clearly central to this genealogy. And this is because God made a promise to David. God preached the gospel first to Abraham when he said, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so Matthew begins by tracing Jesus' lineage through David to Abraham. God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But that promise was narrowed down more. So there was this question, how through Israel, how would the world be blessed? Through Israel, all nations blessed through Israel. And the answer came in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When David desired to build a house for Christ's name, and God said to David, 
you will not. Instead, he said, I will build you a house, he said. And then God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Many times in his life, David was nearly destroyed. And the record in 1st and 2nd Samuel of God's preserving him, keeping him from destruction at his own hand, at the hand of the Philistines, at the hand of King Saul. God prevented his destruction. David sinned terribly against God, and when he repented, God immediately said, you shall not die. God made it known to us that he kept his promise. And then from David to the carrying away into Babylon, we see the best and worst of King David. Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus through Israel's kingly line. Solomon, Rehoboam, who nearly squandered away the kingdom of Israel. Abiah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, and Jeconias. This is the center of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Fourteen kings here that form the center of Christ's lineage. And in that lineage, that succession of kings, Matthew excludes from the record three consecutive kings of Israel. <clears throat> Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Three kings, all three of which came under the influence of Ahab and Jezebel. But it's interesting to me that he names more wicked kings than godly ones. In fact, Matthew Henry points out what a mixture there was of good and bad in the succession of these kings. As, for instance, in verses 7 and 8, Wicked Rehoboam begat wicked Abiah. Wicked Abiah begat good Asa. Good Asa begat good Josaphat. Good Josaphat begat wicked Joram. And why? Why would God present this mixing of good and bad kings? Because this is the story of man. The good and the bad mixed together and all in desperate need of a Savior. Matthew Henry said, Grace does not run in the blood, neither does reigning sin. God's grace is his own, and he gives or withholds it as he pleases. 
I can't help but say that in Messiah the King, the King of Saviors became the Savior of Kings. When Israel's kingly line, demonstrated by their wickedness, by sometimes their idolatry and godlessness, demonstrated their own inability to bring salvation to Israel, just to save them from their enemies alone. God sent forth his son, made in the likeness of sin, sinful men, and for sin. He redeemed us. And then we come to the decline of the house of David. There's a generation missing, according to Matthew's account. Matthew names 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the carrying away into Babylon in verse 11. But Matthew only names 13 generations after Jeconiah. Now, he says 14, but he names 13. Now, a couple things to understand here. First of all, Matthew didn't make a mistake. He counts these generations exactly the way he intends to count them. Secondly, we could make a few suggestions about what Matthew means. There are plausible explanations. But I want to say before I give you a plausible explanation for it, I want to say that the Bible does not explain the discrepancy here. Which means... God does not intend for us to know exactly why Matthew counts it this way. He doesn't explain why we have 14, 14, and 14. He doesn't explain why generations are skipped over. He doesn't explain why four generations are named to cover a period of 400 years. He does not explain it. And he does not explain why he names 13, but counts it as 14. God does not explain it. When that's the case, our response to the word of God has to be that these are the words of God, that God knows his reasons for counting it this way and describing it this way, and that I am not able to know the mind of God on this point, but I receive it as the word of God. This is what God wants me to know about the generations of Jesus Christ. Matthew's record is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so it says exactly what God intended for it to say. But one of the suggestions, and there are several suggestions that have been offered for this, but one suggestion made a lot of sense to me. Many of the commentaries, in fact, I would say the ones that I read, most of them believe that King David is to be counted twice, that that's why David is mentioned twice here in this, in verse 6. I, I just, I think it's more plausible uh, to explain it this way. 
Jehoiachin, in verse 11, is called Jeconias. Jehoiachin, I believe, is meant to be counted twice. Notice in verse 11 and verse 12, name Jehoiachin, before Israel was carried into captivity, and then again after they were carried into captivity. Now there's a reason why this makes sense to me, that Jehoiachin would be counted twice in Matthew's lineage. Because, and I'm just going to tell you the story of Jehoiachin. When Josiah died, his son Jehoahaz was 23 years old. Jehoahaz, not Jehoiachin, but Jehoahaz reigned for three months in Israel. And this is right at the time when Nebuchadnezzar was attacking and besieging Jerusalem. He reigned for three months, and 2 Kings 23, 32 tells us that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bands at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem and put the land to a tribute of an hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the, king in the room of Josiah, his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim, not Jehoiachin. I don't want to confuse you with this too much. But Jehoiakim was different than Jehoiachin, who's Jeconiah in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy. Jehoiakim is not mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew. But the Bible tells us that Jehoahaz was taken away and he came to Egypt and he died there. And then in verse 36 of 2 Kings 23, the Bible says that Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now Jehoiakim, again, is left out, excluded from the lineage of Jesus Christ. In the days of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and made Jehoiakim his servant. After three years of this arrangement, Jehoiakim rebelled and God destroyed him. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he also reigned for three months. And then Nebuchadnezzar took him captive made him a prisoner, carried him away to the land of Babylon, and his brother Mataniah became Israel's puppet king. Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Zedekiah, and Zedekiah eventually rebelled against Babylon. And when he rebelled, the Bible says in 2 Kings 25 that the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went the way toward the plain, and the army of the Chaldees 
pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. Now understand the bloody mess of David's family at this time. The Bible is telling you Babylon is about to decimate the family line of David. Jehoiachin is a boy when he's carried into captivity. He does not have any children. All the others of David's royal seed have been killed. And Jehoiachin is kept in prison. Not for a year or two or three. Jeremiah the prophet, in fact, prophesied this of Jehoiachin in Jeremiah 22 and verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. And yet, Matthew tells us that Jehoiachin begat Salhiel. How can this be? The Bible tells us of an amazing, amazing event. In 2 Kings 25, verse 27, the Bible says, And it came to pass in the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month. Isn't that amazing? Thirty-seven years after Jehoiachin was carried into captivity, the Bible names the very day in which evil Merodach, king of Babylon, released Jehoiachin from prison. He would have been 55 years old without a child at that time. And evil Merodach released him, changed his prison garments, and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And so the kingly line of David almost ended at the captivity. It would be, if you think about it this way, it would be as if the 14th generation from David, as named by Matthew, Jehoiachin, died. For 37 years, he was a dead man until God raised him again. And then he had a son. And that son, that son, became another father in the lineage of Jesus Christ. This wasn't the first time God allowed the promised seed to come as close as possible failure and collapse. Abraham was an old man 
when God finally kept his promise to him. There seems to be more stories than could be told from this lineage. The 12th verse tells us that Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad. The Old Testament confirms this lineage six different times, but one time in one place, we're given a different name as the father of Zerubbabel. In 1 Chronicles 3, verse 17, and the sons of Jeconiah, Asher, Salathiel, his son, Malcharim also, and Pediah, Pediah, and Shenaz, Jechemiah, Hoshamah, and Nebadiah, and the sons of Pediah were Zerubbabel and Shimei. So the Bible in 1 Chronicles names a different father of Zerubbabel than Salathiel. Some have suggested that Zerubbabel was Salathiel's grandson, but Shalathiel died without a son, and that his brother Pediah, according to the Leverite custom, raised up seed to his brother. Listen, we can't say for sure. We don't know. That's possible. The point is, what we have represented for us in the book of Matthew, in the genealogy that Matthew gives us, what we have is a history that is saturated with the grace of God and his continuous intervention in order to keep his seed alive. The hundreds of years, thousands of years are staggering, amazing that a family line would survive, especially when you consider the tragedies, the conquests, the, 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 the defeats in battle, the captivity of Israel, all of these things that the family line survived in order to bring the Messiah into our world. It's an amazing thing. <clears throat> we could probably preach a couple of sermons on all the applications that we might take away from this remarkable account of the lineage of Jesus Christ. I know that when I read Matthew Henry's commentary, he gave 10 different applications and takeaway points from this lineage alone. I'm not gonna give you 10. I'm gonna give you four. And the last two will be pretty quick. Here's one. Jesus stumbled with the transgressors. In every possible way, Jesus, I'm sorry, that's my heart that's just beating out of my chest. It's making a lot of noise here, all right? It'll be all right, though. In every possible way, Jesus made himself of no reputation. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. As I said earlier, we might have expected him to come with a blue-blooded pedigree. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come as one who is aloof from or um, disconnected from our sinful state. But he made himself downstream of a lineage of sinful failures. 
In doing so, Jesus shows that the desperation was not limited to a few exceptional cases. Sin and fallenness was the rule, not the exception. Keep in mind, Matthew is tracing Christ's claim to Israel's throne through Israel's greatest king. There is no greater Jew in all of history than King David himself. The greatest king that Israel ever had until Christ. But David could not save his own people. In fact, Matthew prominently displays David's moral failure to remind you that David couldn't even keep himself from sin. He couldn't even do that. A failure, by the way, David's moral failure does not qualify as a sin of his youth. It didn't happen when David was in his distress, was in distress, or when David had lost his way, or made a foolish decision out of desperation. It was, in fact, a failure that happened when David had subdued almost all of his enemies, was in the process of defeating one final enemy, was at the zenith of his reign as Israel's king. It wasn't in a time when David was out of sorts or sideways with God. Second Samuel shows, as we've been seeing, that David's attempts to be Israel's Hesed king showing mercy to Mephibosheth and then to King Ammon. And it was in the midst of that when David was making a special effort to display his own righteousness and steadfast love to both his friends and enemies. It was then that David turned on one of his own mighty men, one of the best friends that he had, and betrayed him, and stole his wife, and had him murdered. That was when David failed. Was right. Not only doesn't Matthew ignore that sin, but he brings it up prominently. And David's royal seed, we see, is more bad than good. And after Zerubbabel, the lineage of King David fades into obscurity. We have a declining and growing less and less dwindling into the family of a poor carpenter. And then, then, Jesus Christ shines forth out of the family, the faded glory of King David. And Jesus becomes the glory of his people Israel. I think that's the point that Matthew wants to make. He wants to set Jesus Christ against the backdrop of all this sin, all this scandal, all this 